was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are studied various. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole Series 3, episode number 5. Do make yourself at home here in the Cubbyhole, the podcast that analyzes the best and sometimes the worst aspects of the James Bond franchise. Sit back, relax, enjoy the show. Series number one and two, we covered all of the James Bond films and we started interviewing some of the people behind the scenes. So do consider going back to some of those episodes if you missed them the first time around. Leave us some feedback as well if you feel like it on your podcasting site of choice. It helps us spread the show to the wider Bond community. We're also available via email, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. If you've got any questions, comments, or theories that you want to send to us, and of course, the social media accounts, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Now, in our last episode, we reviewed No Time to Die, a slight deviation from our Series 3 formula. The dust has settled on that film, so uh, maybe we'll get Phil and Adam's thoughts after the cinematic release, what they thought of the DVD Blu-ray experience of the film. But uh, let's jump into this week's episode. Firstly, he's the man who shines brighter than Gustav Graves' Icarus satellite. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? I, and congratulations are in order as well. You, you married your Judy Dentures M. Congratulations. Oh, thank you so much, mate. Yes, indeed, I did on New Year's Eve as well. So, um, you know, in true uh, Pierce Brosnan style in The World Is Not Enough, of course. Just another special mention as well. It wasn't just myself that got married last year, of course. Adam, you were also um, very lucky to, to marry the love of your life as well. Congratulations go to Adam as well. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for uh, for mentioning, Phil. Yeah, it was a fantastic day. And I will take you up on one thing there, Phil. I don't think there's any proof that the world is not enough ending takes place on New Year's Eve. There's a there's this whole thing about, oh, world is not enough. It's sort of a quasi-bond Christmas film. But that's based purely on there's a character called Christmas in it. At no point does anyone say anything to suggest that this is New Year's Eve. I know there's the, the R line about, oh, it's a premature form of the Millennium Bug, but people were worried about the Millennium Bug, if you remember 1999, throughout the whole of 1999. So that, that could have been any time. This could have been March. Well, what do you reckon of the fireworks there at the end? Are they just specially put on for, for Bond to get off with Christmas? Well, well, I think if I were a city that had just narrowly avoided getting blown sky high by a nuclear submarine's meltdown, I'd probably want an impromptu fire di fireworks display as well. So I'd imagine it's, it's nothing more than the city of Istanbul giving back to James Bond, saying thank you very much, Pierce Bronholm, for us not blowing up at the hands of that crazy French dominatrix. Or it was just a fireworks factory that caught fire. That was Valentin Zukovsky's uh, floating fireworks factory, which went the same way as his floating caviar factory. The insurance company is never going to believe this. I'm willing to buy that theory. It sounds more plausible than many of Phil's crazy theories that we've had in the past. Secondly, it's the man who, rumour has it, is just behind Idris Elba in the race to play the new James Bond. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? I'm very well. If I'm right behind Idris Elba, then he must have gone right down the rankings. Then I mean, if he's still in first position, I don't think that sounds quite right. Um, I'm very good. I, I will say, actually, I did talk about No Time to Die. I've got the Blu-ray. I got it twice for Christmas because obviously doing this podcast, everyone decides to then buy you the next one because it's out on Blu-ray. I haven't found time to watch it again yet because it's really long and I've got a life. 
but I have watched all the extras on it. They must be the worst set of extras I've ever seen on like a Blu-ray or a DVD. It's it's just sort of a load of kind of stunt people and kind of random technicians talking about really random stuff. Like there's no big hitters. And you just feel like, you know, they did that Being James Bond documentary on Apple, which is the big three, Craig, Broccoli, Wilson, all doing an audio interview about the whole Craig era. I'm, I'm just very disappointed with that. It feels like we've lost the art of Blu-ray and DVD extras. See, when you said Craig Broccoli Wilson, then I just had visions of a really weird love triangle. I don't think Wilson has any kind of role in that love triangle. I'm sure Broccoli and Craig would be, certainly from Barbara Broccoli's point of view, very down for that. I don't think Michael G. Wilson's getting involved there. Slightly incestuous as well. My little brother. So let's begin the episode with On The Scene. This is the segment where we take a look back at some memorable moments from the Bond franchise. And this time we're heading back to 1981, back to the world of the automatic targeting and attack communicator, back to the half-Greek Bond woman who's out to avenge her loved ones. But does she get the last laugh? Well, to remind us what happens, it's a man who, needless to say, does always have the last laugh. It's Mr. Alan Partridge. Roger Moore rocks up at a weird Spanish version of the Playboy Mansion, where all the guards are busy copying off to some 80s funk and groove music. While eyeing up some sexy swing ball, Bond gets himself bloody captured and brought before budget sun-bronzed Scarface Gonzalo. License to kill or be killed. Everyone laughs when he does a big belly flop, only he's been bumped off William Tell style, and Bond scares the bejesus out of all the pool honeys by bashing some goons with a parasol. He runs into crossbow-toting maniac Molina, but Q's overzealous burglar alarm blows up his Lotus, so they wedge uncomfortably into her pokey Citroen and knock a builder off his ladder, disrupt a local bus service, take the low road, not that low, and put an entire hillside full of fruit pickers out of work. I love a drive in the country, don't you? Then, in a weirdly sleazy-looking neon-signed hotel, Bond tries to palm Molina off. The Chinese have a saying. Before setting out on revenge, first dig two graves. But she frightens the crap out of him with her half-greekness and a hard stare, then swans out like the strong independent woman who don't need no man she is. The end. Thank you very much, Alan. So this is for your eyes only and some of the scenes involving Melina Havelock. So I feel like I give for your eyes only a really hard time on the podcast. And uh, But these scenes, I do enjoy these scenes, I have to say. I think she is quite criminally overlooked as a Bond woman by much of the fandom. And these scenes really kind of develop her character a bit, don't they? We see who she is, her need for that revenge. Of course, I think it's more powerful that we see her parents being killed as well. Uh, so we understand her, her motives completely. Um, and it doesn't, even though there is that age gap, of course, there's always an age gap with Roger and his uh, his women, but <laughs> but it doesn't feel too bad. You don't get B.B. Dahl vibes, I don't feel, from these scenes at all. And they are, they're quite powerful, aren't they? For me, I love For Your Eyes Only. I think it's one of, you know, one, certainly one of Roger's best. Um, but it's also, it's quite um, indicative of how the tone would be set for kind of 80s action films in general, I think. Of course, we're also moving away from the rather ridiculous opening uh, pre-title sequence, which is a bit more slapstick, where 
Um, you know, obviously Bond is trapped in the helicopter and then takes man with wheelchair and in inverted commas um, for a ride down a chimney. And it's going more towards, as you say, Martin, Molina's parents being killed. And obviously this is the first opportunity to show, you know, that kind of the calculating um, and resourceful nature of Molina, the fact that, you know, she is this is her character, she is out for revenge. Again, there are still moments of slapstick in it. You know, who'd have thought that a sombroly could be bulletproof? Um, and of course, one of my all-time favourite moments in any Bond film, the uh, the return of the Lotus Esprit with the turbo. Unfortunately, at this stage in time, I think car crime in the UK and in Europe must have been rife because even Q Branch have had to put their own burglar alarms on, on their cars. So, again, it's one of those great gags that you get. And, of course, this is kind of John Glenn's first opportunity to really put his stamp on on his style of, of filmmaking, if, if you like, because he is going to dictate how the Bond films will go in the 80s. Yeah, you're right. I've always loved The Aura's Only. I feel like it's kind of overtaken on Her Majesty's as kind of the connoisseur's Bond of choice, isn't it? It's like you're a true Bond connoisseur if you love The Aura's Only. But Phil, you nailed it there, which is the fact that although we think of it as the down-to-earth, gritty Roger Moore film, it's still really funny. I mean, that whole chase scene, I think this is Remy Julien's first, and obviously the fact that the Lotus blows up is a statement of intent. The gadget-laden car blows up, and so actually we're just going to have a pure chase which uses the geography of these tight streets and these winding roads and these hillsides for, you know, stunt work. And yet in the middle of that, we still get Roger Moore doing his sort of nod and smile to the goons as they drive alongside him. We've got the fact that uh, everyone sort of giggles at Gonzalo's belly flop and Locke on the way out grabs a wad of cash away from one of the, the poor honeys who just starts bursting into tears. There's still lots of really funny stuff in this. And you're right, it's blended brilliantly with that Bond and Molina thing, which is taken really seriously. I mean, and Carol Bouquet as well. She was in like her early 20s when she filmed this, like 23, 24. Um, and we've seen in that first scene with the Havelocks a bit of that youthfulness and vivacity. But here she's completely cold-eyed and darker and mature. And you're right, she's sort of using her own means to facilitate all of this. That's her hotel that they're in at the end of the scene. She mentioned she's used a private investigator to track down Gonzalo. And of course, yeah, we talked when we reviewed the film about the fact that it's completely unsexual, that relationship between Bond and Melina. It, it becomes something paternal, but at this point, they're just very unsure of one another. I think Roger was actually older than the actor who played Melina's father in this. So it's kind of, there, it is still a little bit awkward, that relationship. But again, it's, as Martin, as you mentioned, it's not quite as bad as um, obviously B.B. Dahl, as we'll see later in the film, where she is very much, you know, kind of played for laughs as the, the kind of ditzy blonde almost, whereas Melina is portrayed much more... I wouldn't say as a femme fatale, but she's much more, again, resourceful and she is, you know, she's she's very calculated in what she has to do. Yeah, I think the guy who played the father recently died, actually, so RIP to him. He trained Max the Parrot, of course, the uh, one of our favourite characters. So there's also this scene, it's all wonderfully 80s, isn't it? You know, sort of Bill Conti's music, he's sort of fresh from Rocky and Rocky 2, I think, at this point. And he brings a really sort of fun, up-tempo vibe to uh, to the whole car chase sequence. But also the fact that costume designs have gone completely mad on those 80s-style bikinis. And I wonder, you know, was it was it bring your own and they just cast people who they knew would have this stuff? Or did they just force them all to put these crazy 80s bikinis on when they got there? Suddenly you've got a troop of actresses all going, oh no, what have we signed up for? Look what we've got to be seen in. 
I also wonder if this is, again, if this is just an 80s action trope, because I think it's Beverly Hills Cop 2 where they literally go to the Playboy Mansion. So maybe maybe this is just Bond, the franchise, foretelling what will become, you know, a, a classic 80s action moment where they have to go to a pool party and see lots of bikini-clad women for no apparent reason. Yeah, I mean, we said that Melina Havelock's very cold and calculating here, but we do get a bit of the, the villain as well, don't we? Locke, Locke does seem... Very cold and calculating to, as you say, Adam, taking the uh, the wad of cash after he realised Gonzalez is a bit in the dust. He seems a bit like uh, Vargas, actually. He's kind of a fleshed out Vargas from Thunderball, someone who doesn't seem very interested in these beautiful women around the pool. He's kind of got a job to do uh, and he gets on with it. So uh, it's a nice introduction both to Melina and to, uh, to Locke, I feel. Yeah, you're right. It's a really good bit of physical acting from Michael Gotthard because it's the first time we've seen him. We don't know he's these this sort of cold-blooded assassin at this point. And yet it's all sort of suggested just in how sharp that suit is and how tight it is on him. And just the fact that he says very little and he's kind of very clearly with his eyes measuring everything up. He has that sort of look and that feel to him that kind of suggests that he's going to be someone who Bond has to reckon with. But yeah, I mean, the guards are completely useless here. I mean, the fact that Bond's just... Bond is also being useless. He's just sort of staggering through these woods in zero camouflage with probably the wildest hair that Roger Moore's ever displayed in a Bond film. And yet the guards are all just copping off with these bikini-clad honeys. Well, the bit I love as well is the fact they've all got, you know, submachine guns and they can easily shoot Bond and Molina and they, they just can't hit a Bond door with a machine gun. It's literally... You know, if you're looking for that analogy, this is the Bond film where they, they are the worst henchmen, I think, of the entire series. I think the missed opportunity in this scene is, is a, a swing ball match between Bond and Locke or Bond and Gonzalez, because we sort of see the swing ball being very half-heartedly played with. But it's kind of the lot start of Bond and the villain doing battle over a game, isn't it? Of course, we'll go on to see him versus Kamal Khan at backgammon. Classically golf, of course, in Goldfinger. A few laps of the pool, perhaps. We know from VJM Retrash that Roger was quite good at that, so he should have uh, should have had a go, shouldn't he? Well, I was about to say, would it have been a loaded swing ball? Because as we learnt in Octopussy, that was how Kamal Khan got his advantage. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm just trying to imagine Louis Jordan playing swing ball, and I just can't quite see it. The aim of the game, Mr Bond, is to hit your side of the swing ball. How do you do it? It's all in the wrist. And from... For your eyes only, we move to our next segment, For Your Ears Only. Yes, it's the main feature, the interview segment. And this week, it was an absolute pleasure to welcome TV presenter, author, columnist, most importantly, Bond fanatic, Ollie Smith. So let's go over to Ollie. Let's see what he had to say. And firstly, we asked him his thoughts on the latest Bond release, No Time to Die. Well, first off, I felt extremely fortunate that I was able to watch it. I was at the premiere, you know, a guest of Champagne Bollinger. So it was my first Bond premiere. And having loved Bond movies since childhood, the first one I saw at the cinema was Fiore's Only, which to this day remains my favourite as a result of that. I think the first one you see on the big screen always has a big impact. So it was a wonderful sense of occasion. I had great fizz in my glass. Um, I, I came away feeling that, you know, it's wonderful that they've moved the canon on and they're clearly inhabiting new places with it. I just felt there were certain things that I would have just loved to be there, you know, like, I don't know, the Bond theme, that would have been nice. Um, and the ending, I mean, yeah, they're, they're breaking, I suppose, a taboo. I feel that in the nature of breaking so many kind of Bond kind of totems, I think they sort of undercut one another. So, you know, killing Spectre all at once, uh, killing Bond, Bond becoming a father, um, 
all the big kind of stuff, you know, M being slightly corrupt, all the stuff that, that in another film, one of those would have been knockout. So I came away feeling, I just wish they'd reined it in a bit. But on the other hand, you know, I, my, my family loved it. You know, it's my, my wife and my girls, they came away thinking it was the most emotional bond. It was their kind of one of their favorites. They're big fans of Daniel Craig. So I, I think in reaching a wider audience, they've succeeded. Of the, of the Craig movies, I would place it somewhere in the middle. I think we'd all agree Quantum of Solace was, um, yeah, like losing your footing on an icy, icy steamer that's going down in the middle of the Baltic and there's just no hope for any of us. Um, Skyfall, obviously, I really enjoyed. Casino Royale, fantastic. And um, Spectre, I'd probably put, you know, for me, just a, just above uh, No Time to Die. You uh, you mentioned that this latest film tugged on the heartstrings of your family members. Uh, but should we go back to the beginning? When did Bond first pull on your heartstrings? Oh, I love that question, Martin. I think that it, w- it was for your eyes only. And it was at the Bournemouth, I think it was the Odeon or the ABC on Westover Road. I remember it very, very clearly because I remember the credits rolling. I remember the, I loved the song. I saw Roger on the screen and within kind of moments of the film starting, I thought, I, I really, I really want to have a go at this performing lot because that guy there in the nicest possible way, he's telegraphing that he knows that this is all a bit of a gas and I'm going on the journey with him and he wants me to be included in this movie because I'm in on the kind of gag that this is all a bit absurd. You know, Roger was always brilliant at talking about how the character of Bond, you know, is this great secret agent walks into any bar in any place in the world, instantly recognized, ah, oh, your usual table, Mr. Bond. It is a world of total absurdity in that particular era. And I loved it. I found it really escaping. It was escapist. It was fun. Fiora's only for me has everything, and it's even got pistachios for Max. I mean, what what more do you need in a Bond film? Uh, the soundtrack still now. I listen to on my. I know this is going to sound ridiculous, but I listen to in my little pocket whenever I'm on skis. Uh, Runaway, particularly. I, I I just find it fun. I love also that we get the guy looking at his drink when Rog skis over the ski chalet table from Moonraker and from Spy. You know, I, I love those little iterations. So that was the beginning for me. I went and saw it again. And again and again and again. And then from there, I remember going to see Octopussy and thinking, well, that that was a slightly different film. I wasn't quite as bought into it. And then View to Kill, I thought, yeah, well, this is, this is, things are sliding here. I think the Holy Trinity for me is Spy, Raker, and R. And um, yeah, I, I think those three, I, you could put those on any place, any telly in the world, and I will sit there happily and be your best friend. Did your admiration for the Bond lifestyle sort of play any role in your sort of later career decision to become a wine expert? Or or was that something that was just separate and and was always maybe you were pursuing that regardless? Adam, that's a phenomenal question. And the answer is, I think it probably did have a small impact because I love that Bond had a signature drink wherever he went. He knew what he was going to order and he had this great knowledge of wine, obviously, as well. But yeah, certainly the wine thing. What's lovely now is that I am the guy in the restaurant, you know, if we're out with a bunch of friends. Who will be, you know, well, if it's the 85, you're expecting me or whatever. And it's just, I love those little moments when you can actually say, no, this is a good vintage or this is a really interesting wine. And for me, the, the, the real thing is rather than Bond splurging, he spends an awful lot of money on his booze bill. I really like great value. So I love kind of going the other way. You know, one of the homages I made, um, again, it's a Fiora's only. I know this, we'll, we'll move on from Fiora's only, but, you know, I love that, you know, when he's out for dinner with uh, Chris Tatos, I, you know, I memorize the scene, you know, if you'll forgive me a little too scented for my palate, I prefer the 
of Theotoki Aspro. And I, I went to that island to get a bottle of Theotoki Aspro. It took me like 30 years, I guess. But I, I tasted it. I was there and I was like, it's all right. You know, it's not quite the most amazing wine I was hoping it to be. But I just, yeah, Bond's dining orders as well. You know, like the Ferris of Bronze, Sabra Saladin, Bordetto. I, I just can't stop myself, you know. So I do love that all these things tip off the tongue. And, you know, the little touches and flourishes as well. I think it's, is it Thunderball where uh, Sean's just leaving a room and it's been a big sort of fight and he just picks a grape off. It's that bit of timing. I really kind of, uh, empathize with that because I often find myself whenever I go to a restaurant and it, it's quite a good restaurant or a posh one and I feel ever so slightly out of place I end up talking like Roger Moore when I sort of just go up to sort of go to the table yes I have a reservation for Hollywood <laughs> half past seven it's, it's, it's not even my button I don't even know why I do it I, I tell you why you do it because the best question you can ever ask yourself when you're out in company is what would Roger do? You know, I was asked, I was, we were doing some, I can't remember what we were filming, but somebody said, I oh, just pick it up with your hands. And I said, no, Roger wouldn't do that. That's a knife and fork. That's a beef burger. I don't care if it's a beef burger. It just wouldn't be done. You know, he's the man who hands someone a handkerchief in a Greek street market because they've got some melon running down their chin. Be prepared. You know, and I, I, my only regret and sadness is that in his later years is we didn't see more of him perform. I genuinely think he was... Uh, particularly gifted with comedy, actually. His, I mean, you know from the movies how his timing is impeccable. And in company, he was effortlessly funny and really graceful and also, you know, really shocking. He would be really, like, naughty in a, in a, in a slightly rude way, but always very inclusive. It was never, like, terribly bawdy. It was just, like, oh, it's uh, titillating is the word you might use. Uh, and so well, you, you've talked a little bit about, um, obviously, your relationship with um, Sir Roger Moore uh, in the sort of last uh, decade or so of his life. How did that um, come about? And, and kind of, could you tell us a little bit more what it was like sort of being friends with the, the bond that you'd idolised growing up so? Uh, at the time, I was an animation screenwriter, and I was writing for Pingu and Charlie and Lola, Wallace and Gromit, and with a bunch of guys who were really good friends, one of whom was called Dan Chambers, who was a brilliant kind of animator, director, writer, voiceover artist. He's an absolute polymath. He's a total uh, genius. And um, we were kind of working away, and it was the time when Roger had a heart incident. He had an episode on stage in New York, and Dan very sweetly sort of created this animation called Sir Roger Moore's Requiem. And it basically was a kind of a, a minute and a half of really funny kind of animations of Roger's face dancing around. And um, it found its way to Roger's bedside in hospital, I believe. And um, he was tickled pink and, and got in touch via Gareth to say thank you to Dan. I literally remember grabbing Dan by the lapel saying, we have to meet him. We have to do something to make him well. And so I sat down that night and I wrote a script for, I think this, the initial one was, the, was it The Fly Who Loved Me or Sir Roger Moore's Spaceman? It was one of the two. Sent it off via, via Dan to, to Gareth and um, Roger got back in touch quite quickly and said, love to do it, you know, perhaps you'd like to come to, to, to Monte Carlo, you know, and we're like, Monaco? Yeah, we're on the next ruddy plane. And I remember we went there and stayed the night and I was so like terrified, like all night. It's like me, you're meeting Roger, Roger actual Moore. This is the guy I saw at the ABC or the Odeon in Westover Road all those years ago and decided that I was, I too was going to run away to the circus. And I remember we went into the, the Hotel de Paris. So I remember going to a reception and saying, I'm here to see, see uh, Roger Moore. And um, they were like, oh, no, monsieur, no, no, there's no one here of that name. And they absolutely weren't having it. And then this little bellboy was crossing the, uh, crossing the hall and he just, um, he kind of went, ah, zero, zero set. And we went, oh, yes, 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 absolutely, zero, zero set. Yeah, yeah. Walked us to the elevator. We were going up in the elevator and this lovely kind of bellboy 
absolutely quaking, really nervous, and revealed it was his first day in the job and that Rog too was his hero. And I remember Dan just putting his hand on his shoulder and saying, courage, mon brave. As we exited the elevator and strode forth towards Roger's suite, opened the door, there's the French Open tennis on, Roger's there, white trousers, crisp, crisp shirt, navy blazer, looking impeccable, white shoes as well, unbelievable slip-ons. And he just said, oh, hello, lads, come on in, I'll just turn this crap off. And he was so genial and down to earth. And like, he was my absolute hero for being, you know, the saint, the persuaders, Bond, all the rest of it. But within minutes of chatting to him, he started talking about his work for UNICEF and his concern for iodine deficiency with goiter, for education for girls in Afghanistan, for HIV around the world. And he became my hero absolutely well and truly all for the right reasons. But I remember we took the picture and, you know, again, we're still pretty tense, you know, it's still, you know, the first time we've met him and I'm standing stiff as a board and he goes, oh, you know how to make somebody laugh when they're having the photo taken? I was like, no. And he said, witty titty sex. And that cracked me up. And I, I still laugh about that now. It's just, it's not what you expect someone to say. It really worked. It does make you smile when you're having your photo taken. And from there, we, we kind of hit it off. That's kind of how the relationship happened. And to be in his company, to address the second point in the question, it's exactly as you'd imagine it would be. It's just like being with the person you admire most, the person who's kindest to you, who's funniest, um, and just has, has the time for you. He made time for everybody. And um, I really miss him. Uh, in terms of Bond's drink, uh, for the films, he generally sticks with Bollinger nowadays but uh, there's a bit more variety in the uh, in the books uh, but what would you say is the the quintessential bond libation that's a very good question because we are now in the realms of heineken and you know i know a lot of fans have, have found that tricky i think where where it does maybe diverge a bit from bond's character is that he is supposed to be this uncompromising connoisseur having said that you know we all like a, a cheeky everyday treat every now and again so i didn't mind it that much but i would say bollinger for champagne he's massively associated with it on screen and if you do want the full bond experience uh, i'd say a good place to start is is grand Anay. But an even better place to go is uh, RD, Récemment Dégorgé, Recently Disgorged. That range of Bollinger really is among my favourite in the world. And there was a time when they invited me to a tasting halfway up the Eiffel Tower. Uh, and we all went there in Aston Martins and it was, you know, 20 people had been shipped in from around the world. It was a bomb themed tasting, back catalogue of vintages. And I was sat at lunch next to Barbara Broccoli, you know, Michael G. Wilson was there. It was absolutely astonishing. And after lunch, Jerome Philippon, who was then, I think, the president of Champagne Bollinger, brought out a bottle with a tea towel around it and said, right, you've all had a great time. Now you go earn your keep i'm going to pour you this without knowing it and you are going to have a go at guessing which wine is in your glass well never has wine tasting been more competitive it went around the room you know person had a guess from here and there and everywhere it's coming around to me and barbara's like come on ollie don't let me down you're supposed to be good at this i said look yeah totally you know six quid in in aldi on a saturday morning i'm your man this is, this is way way out of my pay grade and then i suddenly thought hang on a sec i know what this is and there were guesses flying left right and center and i just went sorry ladies and gentlemen jerome barbara I think I know what this wine is. And Jerome's like, okay, what do you think it is? I said, I think this is the 1975 Bollinger RD. And he said, that's an interesting guess. Why do you think it could be that wine? And I said, because Jerome, in a view to a kill, Roger as James Bond comes to this exact restaurant halfway up the Eiffel Tower, the Jules Verne. And he said, he's given a glass of fizz. He sniffs it and says, Bollinger 75. And his dining companion says, I see you are a connoisseur. And I was right, not by knowing anything about the wine, but just by loving Bond. And actually, I've got the bottle. I've, can I keep it here in my office? That's probably the only time in history that Inspector Aubergine's actually been of use. 
Yeah, do you know what? I think that is that is Ashiel Aubergine's only useful moment, apart from you know, he, he I mean, what is it he says? I, I'm glad you approve, uh, since you are paying the bill. It's just like what a caricature of a character. I love those incidental characters. So I'll tell you another massive favourite of mine is Bunky. You know, courage is no match for an unfriendly shoe countess. It's Roger's line, but you know, you're perspiring, Bunky, and and all of that. And I've got a dream, right? You know, you know the the uh, there's that villa. Yeah, they have the kind of pool party at the beginning. So you can hire that villa and it's it's a lot of money. But I'm thinking for my 50th, I'm going to get enough people who really love the movie to come and play swing ball in like blue toweling pants there, just like in the film. And I was going to try and hire the actor who plays Bunky to come over in character just for an hour or two. We're big fans of your podcast, The Glass With, and you have shared, as you mentioned a few of them, a glass with some Bond alumni. Uh, who's the most interesting or surprising guest you've had on? And, and who would sort of be a dream guest that you're yet to share a glass with? Oh, that's a wonderful question. I'd re I'd love to get Mr. T. I think he's brilliant. And, you know, I, 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 I have tried, you know, I've tried Piers Brosnan. Piers has turned it down three times uh, or Piers' you know, management. I think most surprising guest, I love Dawn French. Dawn French made me laugh a lot. And then we went out for a curry after. And, and I've, I've been a, she's my wife's hero. She's like Dawn French to my wife, Sophie, is what Roger was to me. It's a shame yes. about Piers, actually, that he didn't, because he did that Golden Eye watch along and he didn't look very interested in that. <laughs> Quite intriguing. I find Pierce quite intriguing. Like I, I love looking at stills of Pierce when he kind of makes that face. Like you never quite know if he's just about to tell you that he has just, you know, romanced someone that you care about and he's going to revel in it, or he's going to like you know offer you a ride in his amazing car. You just don't know which way it's going to swing. It's that kind of. He's a bit of a mystery. Obviously, you love Roger Moore's ones. Are there any other sort of Bond acts and films which just don't quite hit the mark for you? Th this is another great question. I've, I mean, I've always loved pretty much all the Shawns. Um, I love You Only Live Twice. I actually, you know, my favourite Sean is Thunderball. Um, I always thought that um, Jettison Cocoon, you know, lines like that. You know, I, I, I love that people just have the, the lunacy to build a, a boat that has a, a cocoon, Jettison Cocoon. I mean, he, he must have planned it so he could give that command. I think Sean was absolutely in his prime. His, you know, physique, his, the way he moves. Oh, you just have to excuse my friend. She's just dead. You know, what a great one for Fiona when she's, you know, slumped in a chair. I mean, it's, it's, his touch was phenomenal. I think that was his peak, actually. The ones I didn't like as much, that is a great question. I mean, I, I, I've always respected people who do like the, the George Lazenby one. It always feels a bit long to me. I miss... Dalton, I feel sad that Dalton, you know, didn't get longer. I think Living Daylights is a bit of an unsung hero. It's great. You know, it's a really proper, brilliant, sort of gritty iteration of a classic. License to Kill, uh, yeah, not, not huge on that. I mean, I do like the idea of Sanchez with his lizard on his shoulder, but it just feels a little Hollywood. Um, what, going back to the Roger era, is there a, might be a difficult question, but is there any particular scene from any of the Roger films that you really enjoy? I, I just love him in his pomp. I think all the scenes in The Lotus, when he's dealing with um, Caroline Monroe in the, in the chopper, uh, he just looks great. And, and uh, James, that motorcycle has been following us the last four miles. I've been to that road in Sardinia. I've been there. I was filming in the South and I, I slightly held the crew hostage to do a piece to camera while we were driving along that road. And I, they were like wondering what I was saying because I was basically just saying all the lines, all those feathers and you still can't fly. You know, there's just so many good moments. So I think one that is probably my favorite all time sequence, the Lotus and then the sub. 
Um, and that theme, you know, the my brother and I used to sing that to each other relentlessly on long car journeys. But then you, you hit like a Moonraker, which is a lot of people really don't like Moonraker. But if you really sit back and watch it in widescreen, it's it's just extraordinary. The cinematic nature of it, the shots are brilliant, you know, and the, the ambition of it is it's just wonderful. And the soundtrack, I mean, that is totally out of this world oh love it yeah i totally agree john barry's music when they're they're traveling in space in the rockets to the space station that's oh. amazing that that bum, star wars bum, is star wars for me bum, bum, it's amazing i've got a ba, 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 da. i love all that i've got all the set all of the soundtracks of roger on original vinyl i collected them when i was oh, from the wow. age of about 10 or 11. i think the closest bit that I've really been happy with in the soundtracks lately was in Skyfall when uh, Daniel Craig is running down the street trying to rescue Judy Dench and it goes into another gear and it feel it invokes a real sense of guttural primal I'm going to save someone I care about and in doing so I will save the values of this nation and I know that's a lot to ask from a piece of music but somehow it does it I have to say that is the single best scene in any Daniel Craig Bond film for me because that's when she's reciting the Tennyson as well isn't she like it's the that. sort of it's Ulysses isn't it now, talking of villains, De Silva, I think, is up there with the greatest. I would, I would happily sit down for a villain dinner with De Souza, Stromberg. I, I think Christatos could wait on table because he should be ashamed of himself. And I think Drax has got to come in as well. Let's let's bring Drax in. Um, but that would be that would be a hell of a dinner, right? De Souza. He's full of, full of stories. You know, do you like my island? What a speech that is. One of my kids learned that speech and learned it to the walk as well. My, grand, my grandmother had an island. Rats, you know, it's, it's really something. I'm convinced they only cast Javier Bardem for the way that he says coconut. Um, <laughs> in terms of the locations, is there anywhere that you haven't been of a Bond location that you'd really like to go to? I would really love to go and do the Thunderball ones and, and go to the Bahamas. And I, th I think you can walk still walk around the edge of Largo's villa. I think it's still there with the low wall. And that would be amazing if the shark pool's still there. I mean, I'd, I'd happily take the owners out for lunch if I could go for a swim in the shark pool. That'd be incredible. Can you imagine swimming where those sharks had a nibble at Bond? I think oh. it's gone into, I think it's in disrepair now. I think it's up for sale for what? several millions. You're kidding me. Listen, how many listeners have you got and how many listeners have I got? Let's all club together. We all put in a five and we can buy it, right? I mean, come on. That's our new base. What for you is the kind of enduring appeal of Bond? Why has it lasted so long? Why does he, as a character, those films, why do they still fascinate and hold our attention? It's the, te it's the tension between being ludicrous and being entirely of the moment. You know, I, I grew up in the 70s and 80s and the threat of the of, of a kind of nuclear apocalypse was, was, was quite real in my imagination. Um, you know, I was engaged with that. So things like Octopus, you know, that threat, you know, felt real, but the movie is clearly absurd, you know, especially when Roger's resurrected from the dead in a, in a sack. What a noise. Um, I love it. <laughs> so that for me is what, what holds the, the real joy of Bond is the ludicrousness of it, coupled with, you know, we're actually talking about some salient issues as well. And I think when that, when that dial is absolutely in the middle and balance, that's when it's most successful and it reaches its widest audience and it, it resonates globally. Because we are living in extraordinarily troubled times. We are in a massive state of change that's long overdue socially, and I'm, I'm delighted to see it. I think Bond needs to be absolutely the vanguard of that, needs to be leading the pack in a way that makes us all feel, just like Roger used to do, that we're all in and we're all invited.
So that was Ollie Smith. What a lovely, friendly chap he was and brilliant. I know it's always great to meet someone who has connections with Sir Roger. And I do feel like we're sometimes a bit stupid, like always asking the same question, what was Sir Roger like? But, uh, but he gave us some great answers, didn't he? And it, uh, it seemed like he had just a lovely, genuine affection for the chap, both as a fan and later as a friend. I think I'm going to be using witty titty sex for, um, you know, for every situation where I need to force a smile out of myself from now on. I think also, like, we should thank Ollie for introducing uh, his Rogesty to our lexicon as, as a nickname for the great man. I've, I've never quite heard that one. Yeah, I think we should definitely use that one. I would actually, I would take issue with Ollie on that. I would include Octopussy as part of the height of uh, his Rogesty. I, you know, we're, we're still big fans of that film. Just putting it out there, though, should we include A View to a Kill in uh, his Rogesty's? No. No, you're the only person who likes that film. <laughs> what, in the world? I feel like Phil loves it because it's the one where he feels like he could get involved. Like if someone like St. Godfrey Tibbet could find himself at the centre of this espionage thriller. Exactly. It gives us hope as fans. He just wants to meet Alison Doody, doesn't he, in the French Chateau? Oh, my dear, I take it you spend quite a lot of time in the saddle. Yes, I love an early morning ride. No, I'm an early riser myself. So next up is the 007 Best segment in which we rank the seven best in a selected Bond category. Today's top seven is that of Bond dinner scenes. So Bond, of course, very famous for drinking a lot in the uh, in the books and in the films, but we don't get much in terms of cinematic dining experience with uh, with 007. But uh, let's jump into our top seven dinner moments, starting with number seven. And in at number seven, it is the Bond surprise, the sort of surprise we're going to kill you now, Mr. Bond dinner at the end of Diamonds Are Forever. Uh, we've talked about this scene a lot and we do love it, um, You know, particularly the fact that um, everyone knows what's going on in this scene, but Sean Connery just waits there for them to attack him. I mean, he has barbs about the aftershave, not strong enough to bury anything. And, you know, Mooton Rothschild is a claret. So everyone knows that he knows who they are and their assassins, but he still just waits for them to finish announcing and pouring the wine and everything. My other thing about this is Bruce Glover's French accent is so thick, I cannot actually tell what's on this menu. The only bits that I get are oysters, prime rib, and then titbits. But what is titbits? Yeah, I can't imagine it being like a Michelin-starred restaurant. You just look down this really extravagant menu and there's just titbits at the end of it. Was it titbits? Because I know the Americans are... Quite prudish about saying the word tit. They change it to tid, don't they, with a D. Yeah, but that is incorrect. The word is titbits. I don't, I don't care what Americans say about no, it. I'm just wondering what Bruce Dufford says in the film. <laughs> I did, well, as I say, I can't tell. I thought it was titbits. It might have been, I don't know, roast chicken from that accent. It could have been anything. Un unless, was he trying to call the waiter and he just mispronounced it? He was trying to say tibbits. Oh, what, before he went into horses, Sir Godfrey Tibbetts just on Willard White shit. I'll tell you what Godfrey Tibbetts' job's going to be. Godfrey Tibbetts is after, a, oh, who's certainly left with his tail between his legs? When it gets back into harbour, someone's got to presumably wipe a load of Mr. Wint off the side of the boat. Yeah, you never see you never see the aftermath of these, uh, these one-liners, do you? It's quite a gruesome ending for that character. And, of course, highlights the perennial uselessness of Tiffany Case. I mean, she does absolutely nothing when Bond's being garroted and Mr. Kidd's coming at him with these fiery sheesh kebabs. All she does is sit there and go, eek! And then afterwards, when she just lobs the big cake and misses, what she thinks she's doing? Like, she's a Marx Brothers film or something. But the fact that that cake is clearly like papier-mâché on the top and it's just like she just doesn't even twig that it's not... It's yeah, not only twig doesn't twig, but it's not a real cake. Sees it and goes, mm, mm, that looks delicious. 
number six. And in at number six, we have the dinner up at Piz Gloria in on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Of course, in real life, you can go to the restaurant at Piz Gloria, but in the film, we get the uh, the fake Sir Hilary Bray having dinner with all of the lovely ladies. And uh, this scene, I feel like it's a little bit... It's something we didn't really see with Connery. It feels a bit weird in a Bond film, certainly seeing it for the first time. Lazenby's Bond dinner with all of these women. We know that he's going to you know, try and hook up with one or many of these women. We just don't know how it's going to happen. Um, so, yes, yeah, it is weird that we get the, the dubbing of the, the real Sir Hilary Bray with his voice. I would have liked Lazenby to, to have a go at the accent himself. Um, but uh, I think it's, it sets up the, the scene quite nicely in, in a slightly unbondian way, I think. Yeah, it's quite a bizarre scene in some ways. It's the only truly carry on Benny Hill style scene in what's, you know, kind of a pretty straight, like serious film. It's almost like they realise we're an hour in. We've not really had any silliness, you know, sort of Tiger Tanaka's bathhouse style. But I think what I really love about it is that it shows a Bond who's actually done his research. I mean, he genuinely seems to rabbit on about heraldry for a good few hours or certainly long enough to bore the entire room. Yeah, I was about to say, doesn't he kind of send everyone to sleep in the end? They're just like so bored by his lecture that it's just, you know, they can't bear any more of it. It's, you know, it's a bit more like, it's a bit more towards Roger Moore in a way. You kind of expect him to, to almost do that. But one of the absolute best stories I've, I've ever heard from this scene in particular was um, when George Lazenby was uh, filming um, this sequence. Apparently, the um, for a practical joke, I think they had like a uh, Frankfurt or you know some sort of sausage that they they decided to try and tape to his inner leg obviously to try and you know get a reaction out of the uh the his fellow cast members um but apparently this backfired because they were expecting her to you know obviously leap out of her skin when she put her arm on his leg and nothing happened so you know I think they're all a bit confused when she didn't react but apparently the actor took Lazenby to one side afterwards and said what the hell was that between your legs and it was sort of a, quite an awkward moment for the two uh, two actors I think it's a pity Grace Jones wasn't up there we know what she'd be hiding under the table what a sort of very weird food fight fencing match between the two of them. I think that was because the, the crew didn't really get on with Lazenby in this, did they? thought he was a bit of a, the prima donna, so maybe they were just trying to stitch him up with that. I think as well as Lazenby, let's give a shout out to the other George, George Baker, because his voice-only performance is really great in this. He absolutely nails the one-liners far better than Lazenby does throughout the rest of the film. But he's also having to do the thing of doing his voice but his voice as performed by someone who isn't him. So it's very different to what he's like in the other scene when he's the actual Sir Hilary Bray. It's a little bit higher, isn't it? Like he, he's sort of deliberately doing an impression of his own voice. Number five. Okay, I'm moving on to number five. So we have the Crab Key dinner at Dr. No, of course, the very first um, dinner scene of the entire franchise. This one, of course, is kind of is very sinister in tone in many respects. Obviously, this is kind of Bond and Honey Rider meeting Dr. No and, and kind of getting to know his his kind of grand scheme, as it were. It's very, very cleverly um, filmed and very, very um, indicative of what we'd see, you know, in kind of future Bond films with those dinner scenes. You know, it's that kind of playing off between the villain and Bond and, you know, and Bond trying to get the upper hand at each opportunity. Yeah, I mean, when we were compiling our lists here of our best dinner scenes, I found it quite difficult because offhand it's quite, uh, off the top of your head, it's quite difficult to think of the actual dinner scenes. And I, I couldn't tell you what they were eating at that dinner, but I chose this one quite high on my list, actually, because just 
the the impact that the uh, the main villain has we get joseph wiseman giving it a great performance i think as the the first villain and uh, revealing himself to uh you know try and one-up bond and obviously failing in this particular scene so yeah i think it uh, it gives us some nice insight into that villain who we haven't seen actually for quite a while at the beginning of dr no it takes a while doesn't it to actually introduce him and i think it is quite a, a good introduction yeah, it's great. It's an interestingly long scene, isn't it? We get a lot of the character's backstory, but a lot of the geopolitical sort of situation of what's going on in sort of 1962, weirdly. I mean, you know, they're sort of pitting these big nation states against each other almost. But you're right, it is the archetypal villain confrontation right there in film one. The fact that Dr. No's trying to be a bit of a snob and a bit of an, you know an aesthete I guess but Bond completely outdoes him and then goes out of his way to completely irritate him it's also one of those rare scenes as well where it's kind of Bond actually gets seven bells kicked out of him as well because obviously the henchmen kind of do give him a proper kick in and it's um you know it's we tend to think of Bond as kind of being invincible to this you know where he 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 that has gadgets or, you know, he can actually fight his way out of these type of scenarios. It is quite interesting looking at the guards in this scene, actually. If you look at the guy who's pouring the champagne, he's absolutely terrified. He's like shaking as he pours the thing. So do you think, that you know, all the guards who are a bit too rubbish to be actual security guard henchmen, they've just been palmed off with other stuff. So this guy's been given butler work. Have you noticed as well, there's one of the guards who's bold, who looks alarmingly like Sandor from uh, The Spy Who Loved Me. Oh, you were going to say Christoph Waltz then. It was Stuntman Dave, though, I think. Also, I do love the idea of a uh, Bond trying to steal that butter knife. And obviously, you know, it's, it's a testament to Dr. No, he spots the attempt immediately and says, I'll put that knife down. But also, what's he going to do with this little cutlery knife if he goes away? Well, those things aren't going to do any damage to anyone. Unless he, like, shoves it up your nose or something. I was going to say that, don't you feel sorry for the cooks? Maybe they've made a massive three-course meal for this and they never eat anything, do they? Dr. No just kicks them out before they start the meal. Surely they can't have a three-course meal because straight after this, Dr. No is going to go off into his uh, his reactor chamber and, and, you know, kick off World War Three. I mean, you'd think you wouldn't want to do that where you're really full, would you? You, you just wouldn't be concentrating. You'd be like, oh, I've got, I've got a cramp. It's a Dom Perignon 55. It would be a pity to break it. I prefer the 53 myself. And in at number four, it's our favourite octopusy, and it's Kamal Khan and Bond having stuffed sheep's head at the Monsoon Palace. Uh, we just literally talked about the fact that, uh, you know, Bond goes out of his way to out-snob Dr. No, and usually has that one-upmanship with the villains. But this is probably the only time that Bond himself is out-snobbed by a villain. You know, Kamal Khan is far more interested in his very urgent souffle. It can't wait. And, uh, of course, he is the one who will, who will sample the sheep's head by plucking out that eyeball and eating it much to uh, his Rogesty's disgust. Yeah, it kind of shows just how far, you know, Kamal Khan will go as well, because I can remember watching this as a kid and just being physically repulsed by the fact that he, he could so obviously now knowing it's marshmallow probably makes it a bit easier to stomach. But, you know, looking back on that scene, you know, the, the fact that he's he's not squeamish at all, you know, it gives you the sense of his ruthlessness again. And, you know, and even Roger is kind of repulsed by him almost, I think. It's a bit similar to Indiana Jones, isn't it? I feel like links of the monkey brains. And Phil gets that reference now. I also love just how calm Kamal Khan is as well throughout this entire scene. Like he's talking about the fact that they're going to torture Bond with this brain damaging truth serum. 
And, uh, you know, all the rest, and he has that sort of very sly, pervy line about, I believe you and Miss Magda have already met. Like, he's in his element and he's really enjoying this and he thinks he's won at this point, which is probably why he's not going to torture Bond until the next morning, giving him a full 12 hours to escape. Did anyone work out what the point of that very weird Zoom close-up of Gabinda was when the stuffed sheep's head is revealed? He's sort of staring very blankly into the middle distance. And I sort of thinking, well, why, why have you done that? He's not looking at anything. And then I thought, do you think these are his sheep? Do you think Gabinda is secretly like a bit of a sheep farmer? And Kamal Khan's just gone, I need to frighten Mr. Bond. These sheep, they are on the menu. That's literally Gabinda just has all the really rubbish jobs. He has to just, you know, he has to go out and murder sheep as well as, you know, people. It's just, as we see at the ending scene, where he literally has to go out on the wing of a plane to try and foil Bond from stopping their escape. I've, I've, as a result of this one shot, I've completely reanalyzed Gabinda's sort of placid, middle-distance silence throughout the whole film. I think that he's secretly judging everything that Kamal Khan's doing. He's in the back of his mind, thought, we had a great life here. You know, we were exiled in India. We had this lovely palace. We had our pick of nights out. We used to enjoy now Standard Club. And then he got involved with Stephen Bloody Burkoff. And now, you know, we've got this spy in here. I'm having to behead my own sheep. What's happened to this guy? Number three. And making it into the top three, at number three, it's the man with the golden gun. It is, of course, Chef Nick Nick on his own private island. Now, of course, this character has a multitude of jobs that he has to carry out for Scaramanga, but one of them, surely the best one, is uh, is serving the dinner. And uh, it, I'm not quite sure what to say about this, apart from that I love Nick Nick. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, do you know what? I'm really disappointed that Nick Nack didn't serve Nick Nacks at his own party, because I, I think that would have been a great aperitif. Or d'oeuvre. He should have served some tidbits. He's also presumably had to do an incredibly quick change into a different tuxedo, because when Bond arrives on the island, Scaramanga shoots the cork off. Pretty much half a bottle seems to go over knick-knack. So he's had to cook this amazing mushroom meal and he's had to sort of do a quick change while he's doing it. I mean, there are, there are no ends to knick-knack's talents. You know, I, I do feel a little bit sorry for knick-knack. The fact that he then has to cook the meal as well. The fact that, you know, Scaramanga can't even get any other staff in. So, you know, it's kind of, it must be the over, most overworked butler in on that side of the planet, I think. Knowing what we know about um, Hervé Villachez and his love of the ladies in real life, can we can we perhaps assume that actually it's him who's forced Mary Goodnight into that bikini and it's not Scaramanga at all? Maybe when he had his own restaurant on the mainland before he even met Scaramanga, that was just the dress code. Like men in sort of nice suits or tuxedos. No, the ladies, they got to come in bikini. If you look carefully, he's an extra in for your eyes only. <laughs> just in the bushes next to the pool. Number two... Okay, and in at number two, we have the Orient Express meal from Russia with Love. Of course, this scene being iconic because it's where Red Grant unwittingly reveals himself with the uh, infamous uh, red wine with fish order, which, of course, alerts Bond's suspicions to him. So this is really one of those iconic scenes that would have a lasting memory in, in the minds of many Bond fans. And it is, of course the undoing of, of Red Grant as well. So it's such an iconic moment. Yeah, I think Connery's Bond has twigged, hasn't he? I think that right from the beginning, he's very suspicious of the Red Grant character, but uh, that allows him to reference back to the uh, the red wine and fish as a, as a great line. Uh, yeah, I think it's a great scene and quite interesting that we get Tatiana's character with them as well. It's like they're facing off against each other, but they do also still have to uh, to entertain Tatiana 
Yeah, it's interesting. Bond does rumble in very early on, but he also underestimates his strength because Grant is being so clumsy and awkward in everything he does in this scene. I mean, there are loads of little touches that just make it really off. The fact that when they're waiting for Bond to come in the carriage, uh, Grant and Tatiana are not sat face to face. He's literally sat next to her, hemming her into the wall and not saying anything. It's just so awkward and uncomfortable. And the fact that when he knocks the, the glass over of wine to, to poison her, or drug her rather, he very clearly does it deliberately. I mean, Connery's just watching this under the lids of his eyes, thinking, oh my God, this is the most incompetent traitor I've ever seen. And just the way he says things like that Chiro at the end, he's just listened to Grant babble on. Chiro, whatever. I'll beat you up in a minute. Yeah, you have to wonder how much, tra- obviously, because we see the Spectre training and how much they actually do to, you know, give them a background of... Because you get the feeling that Bond has had quite a classical education at this point. And, you know, he, he is obviously aware of of the correct etiquette to have at, at kind of these, um, you know, luxury meals. You'd have thought Spectre would have invested in, you know, kind of interview techniques for, uh, you know, after dinner speaking or, you know, anything like that. Or Like those call centres that are not in Britain and they teach people about British culture, EastEnders and stuff. Red Grant could have just spoken about the soap operas. I say, did you catch Corey last night, old man? I see Ken Barlow's back on the street. Ken Barlow never left the street. Number one. And in at number one, our top dinner scene in the James Bond film series, it's the train meeting between Bond and Vesper in Casino Royale. So it's sort of a known fact that when they're sort of chemistry testing new um, female actors who are going to play opposite the incumbent Bond, the scene that they get them to do as a screen test is the From Russia With Love hotel scene when uh, Bond meets Tanya. I sort of wonder if this one must now be the one that replaces it because there's so much wit and depth of character in this. It's so brilliantly written. It gets both of those characters established to an absolute T. We get that Vesper's a lot smarter than Bond. She beats him as his own sort of psychoanalyst game. But also it gets to the heart of who Bond is in doing that. We get finally vocalised the damage and the trauma that he's carrying. And she just gets that immediately on sizing him up and meeting him and taking in his look and his personality. It's just a shame it's all ruined by that little watch product placement, isn't it? But it's just the fact of how they introduce each other as well. The fact that, you know, they don't even say hello. It's literally just, you know, Vesper just sits straight down to I'm the money. And it's just, you know, can you imagine if she'd have done that in the wrong seat, if she'd like sat next to a fat bloke and said that? It, would, it just wouldn't have worked. It would just look really awkward. But because she almost knows who Bond is already and she kind of has the measure of him. You know, you could just tell that Bond is flirting when he says, um, when Vesper asks him how the lamb was and he just says skewered. And, you know, it's just, there's just these great little moments between the two of them that really sets that journey up that obviously we will, we will then see become really, uh, you know, a tragic end. But it is just a brilliant opening for those two characters. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons I want Martin Kimball back for the new Bond. He can do the action and he can do these intimate scenes as well, really introducing the characters in a in a meaningful way. So come on, Kimball for Bond 26. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I read that line, skewered one sympathiser slightly differently. I think, yeah, he is flirting a little bit. But also it's the fact that this is probably the worst grilling he's ever had on a personal level. This has exposed him far more than any villain has ever managed to do. And I think that's brought home by the look of relief on uh, Craig's face when Vesper walks off and he can sort of finally breathe a little bit again. But I think he means he's been skewered as well. Like she has completely 100% put a stake through him. How was your lamb? Skewered. Sympathizers. So our next segment is the James Bond Film Club. 
what film are we going to review this week, Adam? So this week we are looking at Escape to Athena. Uh, this is uh, made in 1978, uh, just after The Spy Who Loved Me. So this is very much the peak of his rogesty. Uh, directed by George P. Cosmatos, who would, uh, I think, more famously go on to direct Rambo First Blood Part Two. Uh, you know, what I want, what we all want, is for our country to love us as much as we love it. So this is a, a Roger Moore star vehicle. Uh, it wasn't a big success at the time, but it's since become a bit of a cult favourite and probably Roger's most famous film outside of Bond, which is strange because although he has top billing, it's actually an ensemble cast, which we'll come to in a second. But anyway, so it's somewhere in the Greek islands in 1944 where this film takes place. And Roger Moore, believe it or not, is a Nazi prison camp commandant. But, of course, he's not a bad Nazi because he's Austrian, he enjoys jazz, he's kind of a crooked antiques dealer on the outside, so he's a bit of a cheeky wheeler dealer. And we also know he's a good Nazi because, let's face it, he's played by Roger Moore. Uh, so this camp are sort of on the mountain of Athena, excavating these ancient Greek treasures and overlooking them is an SS fortress on a monastery at the top where there's a sort of much more heavy handed SS officer. And playing Roger's prisoners in this camp is a cast that can only be described as eccentric. We've got wisecracking new Hollywood actor Elliot Gould and brassy Stephanie Powers over as USO show entertainers. We've got Richard Shaft Roundtree. We've got Sonny Bono of Sonny and Cher. And we've got a sort of meeting of the bonds because at the head of the sort of in-prison cohort is none other than Sir David, his royal nivness, Niven the Niv. And on the outside of the camp in the sort of Greek town is another Bond alumni, Telly Savalas, uh, post-Blofeld and also post-Kojak at this point. So, of course, he's a hero. He's a Greek resistance hero who's masterminding a takeover of the prison camp so that they can kind of go and knock out the SS fortress at the top of the mountain. But... To do that, he's going to need Roger Moore to turn on the Nazis and help them in order to aid the Allied invasion of the island. It's an interesting film, this one. There's no lead character in it, really, and it means that the storyline is absolutely all over the shop. You don't really know who you're meant to be following or where the main action's going on. And the tone's very disjointed as well. They can't really decide if it wants to be a proper Guns of Navarone-style World War II action adventure or whether it's this comedy caper with this slightly crazy cast searching for like these priceless gold plates which are hidden somewhere on the mountain. However, out of nowhere in the middle of this quite bizarre film is, and I kid you not, the greatest motorbike chase I've ever seen in a film. Right, it comes out of absolutely nowhere. It's, it's directed, as it happens, by Vic Armstrong, who would, of course, be a long-time Bond stuntman. He directs all the second unit action sequences in the Brosnan films. And it's brilliant. It's Elliot Gould versus a fleeing Nazi on motorbikes. Elliot Gould's got a sidecar, which they put the camera on. And the whole chase goes through these tight alleyways on this Greek island. And the stunt work is insane. Uh, and in terms of his rogesty, it's kind of good casting rather than a great performance. I mean, his German accent, which he attempts, veers between extremely thick and extremely half-hearted. Um, but you do sort of believe in his authority as a commandant and also his inherent decency, the fact that he doesn't really like the Nazis and what they've sort of become and he'd sort of happily turn against them. And he does have great one-on-one -on -one scenes with the Niv, Sir David, his Nivness, the Niven, uh, who Roger Moore greatly admired. You know, Niven, of course, one of these early sort of contract British actors in old Hollywood like Cary Grant and William Powell, very much a sort of precursor to what Roger Moore would sort of do when he kind of steps into the movie world. Uh, and they're clearly having good fun sort of riffing off each other. But yeah, that is Escape to Athena. So Roger's um, probably not his best film post-Bond, but certainly his most famous. And worth a look, if only for how weird the cast is and how brilliant that motorbike chase is.
Yeah, I must admit, it's not one that I've seen before, but I think it's one that I'll have to put on the to-watch list because it, it just sounds like it's a really fun caper. Yeah, interesting that we get more than one Bond. Is there a... I mean, I'm not much of a film buff, but are there any other films where we've got a collection of Bonds? I don't think there is, you know, because even... I mean, Sean Connery and Roger Moore were great friends in real life, but I don't think they ever acted together, to my knowledge. So it, it might be kind of the only, at the moment, on-screen meeting between two actual James Bonds. Of course, this means we count the 67 Casino Royale. And they are trying to outbond each other. They're trying to be the suavest, the most charming. Yeah, I mean, in terms of content, Casino Royale 67 should definitely not be counted. But uh, I think it was quite a good... We had quite a good episode on that film, so let's count it. You are now James Bond. So our next segment, it's over to Phil. He's going to show us or reveal his bloopers from The Living Daylights. Yes, that's very much, Martin. So this week, as you've mentioned, it's The Living Daylights, a slightly more serious film, obviously, of course, the debut for um, Timothy Dalton. That said, there is still um, a few moments of bloopers and gaffes that we see throughout the film. So Rich on Twitter got in touch to say that um, one of his favourite ones was, of course, the hapless extra um, in the Tangiers scenes when Bond pulls up outside the French hotel in his Audi who gets accidentally run over so if you're very eagle-eyed you'll spot that an extra gets bumped out of the way so not sure if there's a kind of where there's a blame there's a claim incident there but um, but the extra was was mercifully unharmed of course we also have uh, one of the more unusual Q branch gadgets which fortunately was actually a deleted scene in the end but of course in Tangier's Bond escapes from Necros using a supposed magic carpet, which I think would have been a bit too farcical, even if we would have had it in the uh, Roger Moore days. When Bond and Cara escape in the Czech police in the Aston Martin, of course, we see that the laser cuts through the um, the police larder. I've always wondered how on earth it manages to cut through the entire car without cutting the police officer's legs off because it clearly cuts through the entire chassis. If you are also fairly eagle-eyed, you'll also note that when the car separates from the chassis, there are small caster wheels underneath the body of the car, which help it come to a gentle halt. Interestingly, the head-up display that's used for the missile um, launcher in the Aston Martin is also then reused for license to kill. Unfortunately, the production team, while they use this to probably reduce the budget, um, didn't notice that it still says that the temperature is kind of zero degrees. So even though they filmed those scenes in Mexico, it still comes up with the living daylights um, readouts. It also seems to say that the car is doing 70 miles an hour in the living daylights when it clearly seems to be only doing 30. So that's another minor error there. Now, moving on to uh, the great grumpy ally Saunders, now, you can actually see that outside the street is fairly well lit, even though it is nighttime. So there's no real need for him to actually use the night vision goggles. There's also a very tiny red dot that we see from Bond's uh, firearm, which is also shows that the, the uh, night vision camera isn't actually working because you wouldn't see a red speck using night vision. Now, when we look at the Bratislava scenes, a lot of them were actually filmed in Vienna, which obviously wouldn't have really worked with the um, sort of Cold War theme. So the producers attempted to change the street signs and parked a number of Chabants in the streets. The only problem was we were trying to believe that this was the former Czechoslovakia. Now, Trabants were more commonly seen in East Germany at this point in time, so it wouldn't have really worked as a kind of theme to have so many there. 
A few other kind of amusing moments as well. When Necros fights with the British agent at the MI6 safe house, he actually misses with the frying pan when he attempts to hit him, but the sound effects suggest that he hits him quite hard. Um, the pan is also alarmingly floppy, so I'm not really sure how much damage you could do with it. Um, and then just to finish off as well, one of the slightly more unusual moments, when Bond and Kara are piloting the uh, the cargo plane as it runs out of fuel, Bond quite clearly proclaims that there's nowhere to land um, safely and that he's basically got to ditch the plane over the mountains. Now, obviously, Kara and Bond safely escape in a Land Rover, but they seem to very quickly find an open stretch of road that seems perfectly long enough to land a cargo plane. Um, but at the time seem to be, you know, completely off the map. So whether they've been driving for a very long time to find said road or, you know, it was actually there all along and Bond is just, you know, very unobservant remains to be seen. Just for that, Phil, I'm very surprised that there are any bloopers from the two Timothy Dalton films because I'd have thought the seriousness with which he'd approached the project would mean he'd be on them like a hawk in the edit. Bloody sniper red dot shouldn't be on there. Yeah, you'd be surprised. There are there are more than you'd think, considering it is the kind of the more serious Bond film. He was a hero who murdered in cold blood. Bam, 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 bam. So it's on to my segment, which is Delve Deeply. And this week, we're delving deeply into Mexico. Now, some people have suggested that Mexico's first appearance in the Bond franchise was in the Goldfinger pre-title sequence with its fake seagull, incredibly roomy wetsuit, and it's shocking, positively shocking. But from what I can tell, most sources just label the location as an unnamed Latin American country, and in any case, it wasn't filmed in Mexico. So we have to go to Diamonds Are Forever for its first named appearance. Not that Willard White does a great job in naming it. Baja! I haven't got anything in Baja, but an oil rig in the ocean is not really giving us a flavour of the country. So we do actually have to wait until the Dalton era, specifically Licensed to Kill, to see Mexico properly as it stands in for the fictional Republic of Isthmus. You can still visit the city theatre in the old centre of Mexico City that was used for the exterior shots of Friends Sanchez's Casino although obviously the facade was recreated at Pinewood for those close-up shots and the explosive effects of that dentonite toothpaste. You can also visit the main post office, which doubles as the Banco de Isthmus. Both the interior and exterior were used for filming Bond, making that substantial $5 million deposit. And if you travel around 35 miles west of Mexico City, around one and a half to two hours from the centre on Route 15, you'll find the bizarre complex of Professor Joe Butcher, which is now a ceremonial centre for the native Otami people. It still has that ancient looking architecture, which was in fact created in 1980. And while you're outside of Mexico City, you could visit Baja, California, La Rumorosa Pass, the winding stretch of road, which is used in the climactic battle between Bond and Sanchez. And in terms of places to lay your head at night, you could choose the Villa Arabesque, which was, of course, the luxurious location for Sanchez's villa, where luckily things don't turn nasty. It's on the beach near La Brisas in Acapulco. Uh, the villa was actually built between 1978 and 1982 for a rather flamboyant jet setter, the Baron Enrico de Portanova. Quite a party location in the 1980s. Three swimming pools, a rooftop helipad, and the funicular railway that, of course, we see in the film. And despite some renovations, it does apparently still resemble what we see in License to Kill, Winking Fish and all. 
Or you could, of course, plump for the Grand Hotel in Mexico City, which stands in as the Hotel El Presidente. Lots of good online reviews. It's between 150 and 200 US dollars a night. Many people suggest going up to the roof terrace and having a cocktail, or surely a vodka martini would be more appropriate. And this is, of course, where we see Bond and Pembouvier enter that incredible looking lobby area and the elevator. And we do see that exact location again in the Craig era. Of course, Spectre is the other film that features Mexico. We see the Zocalo, the, the plaza in the downtown area of Mexico. It's just a two minute walk, as we see in that film, to the hotel and the elevator. And probably one of the more interesting stories, I feel, in terms of a Bond location is the Day of the Dead parade, which has always been a festival in Mexico, but it certainly didn't have its own parade, which has only happened subsequent to Spectre and that opening sequence. So it's a a very interesting case of a Bond film inspiring a, a real life parade, which now happens every year. In Mexico City, apparently a quarter of a million people joined the uh, the first one in 2016. So yeah, Mexico, a fascinating place, wonderful culture. And uh, yeah, let's head over there. 29th of October is the Day of the Dead Parade. I'm sure there's plenty of people dressed as Daniel Craig's Bond. Baja! I haven't got a thing at Baja! So next up we have... And it is back to Phil. What questions did we have from our audience this week? Answer my questions quietly, but clearly. Ruti got in touch on Twitter um, with his own kind of theory about the uh, the Bond series. Of course, he actually believes that R is probably the worst Bond kind of MI6 ally that has ever existed in the franchise. Of course, played by John Cleese um, in The World Is Not Enough and Die Another Day. Would you guys agree with that sentiment? The idea that you know R is probably the mo- or you know the most uh, disapproving of Bond as well. Let's say. I mean, yeah, R's certainly more useful than Bill Tanner, isn't he? Like both kind of um, iterations of him, Rory Kinnear and Michael Kitchen. I mean, what does Tanner do? He's just kind of an admin man. Yeah, he can clear up some files on a server, but what's he doing to help Bond out? I mean, yeah, but he has a good joke with him, doesn't he? In Goldeneye, he sort of takes the mick out of M and then realises she stood behind him. You make a great case there, Phil. He's what about his own Penny? series. <laughs> What about Money Penny Action Hero? She actually nearly kills Bond. I mean, she's far less useful. Q's cat, Ben Whishaw's Q's cat. He's he's, he's pretty useless, isn't he? Would we class him as an, an MI6 ally? He's kind of he's kind of like a team pet. Don't be animalist. Don't discount the animal allies. Do you think I'm a theory about that cat? Do you think that's Blofeld's cat? But you know, all its hair got singed off in the big explosion at the end of Spectre, and so Q just kind of adopted it. Is this a new theory? We basically think that Blofeld is infiltrated MI6 with his cat. Oh, now that now you're talking. That that should have been a plot point in uh, No Time to Die, shouldn't it? And so our next uh, Key Branch question came from Keith Richardson on Twitter. So he got in touch with the show to ask for our opinions on Bond 26. Of course, uh, Bond 25, No Time to Die, was Daniel Craig's last of the franchise. He was interested to know our thoughts on whether any of the uh, the existing cast from uh, Daniel Craig's era should return for Bond 26 and whether we should um, perhaps move away from uh, the work of uh, Purvis and Wade in the screenwriting team um, and whether we should maybe look at 
um, you know, new writers to come in and um, maybe take the Bond franchise in a different direction. Yeah, I think in terms of the actors, I think it makes sense to have a completely clean slate. And I think many of them have said they're not coming back anyway, like uh, Ben Wishaw. Um, although I would have liked to see him come back. <laughs> I think it's better that we we separate the Craig era, as we've mentioned in previous episodes. It's kind of separate to the rest of the other films. And we just uh, we just carry on from Die Another Day, I guess. <laughs> Bring back Samantha Bond. Bring back John Cleese. Um, no, I, I mean, yeah, they can't possibly return now because this is the, the whole Craig thing is a closed loop. It would be insane if they all sort of came back. I mean, not impossible. Judy Dench sort of does from Brosnan into the Craig era. Um, and it's almost a shame we only got three films with Ray Fiennes kind of being M or two effectively. Three films with Naomi Harris as Money Penny. Three films with Ben Whishaw as Q. I think they've been great in those roles and they brought a really fresh, interesting dynamic to them. But yeah, you will have to move on. Uh, with regard to Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, yeah, I think kind of probably now is the time for someone else to sort of take on the baton. I don't know who that is. I don't know if you give if you're going to go with a, a major director who writes as well, whether you let them auteur the film. But I do just feel now in terms of Purvis and Wade, particularly the amount of ideas they threw into No Time to Die and the amount of radical things in that film. I feel like they've sort of probably now said everything that they can say about the character. I don't know where those two would go next, really, apart from just helping with general structure and everything. So, yeah, I'd kind of like to see whoever directs it next also write it or co-write it at least and, and really put a big authorial stamp on it. Okay, thanks, guys. So that was uh, this week's Cube Branch. So thank you very much to everybody that contributed with your questions, suggestions, and theories. Of course, we always enjoy interacting with um, our fellow fans in the Bond community. So if there's anything you ever want to ask the RMCH team, please do get in touch with the podcast, um, and we'll be delighted to um, to give you a mention on the show. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! Thank you very much, Phil. So that brings us, as always, with tedious inevitability to the quiz. And this time it's hosted by myself. Always good because it means I can't lose, as I always do when I'm competing. So in honour of our guest this week, the quiz will be based on Bond's alcohol intake. So as a reference point, the NHS in the UK recommends that you drink no more than 14 units of alcohol a week, ideally spread over three or more days. Uh, sometimes 007 stays within these limits, but oftentimes not so much. So very simple, higher or lower game. Adam and Phil will be given a Bond film, and they just have to tell us whether Bond drank more or less units of alcohol than the film that we had preceding. So we'll start where Bond does follow the NHS guidelines. Not sure whether it's over three days, but uh, Thunderball, he drinks 14.5 units of alcohol, some red wine, some Dom Perignon, and uh, a glass of rum Collins. So maybe let's start with Phil. And you're going to have Diamonds Are Forever. Does he drink less or more than 14 and a half units of alcohol? I mean, we've had some mental quizzes on the show in recent years, but I think this is a this is a great quiz. This is the best quiz we've is, ever done. This this is verging on an intervention, isn't it? With uh, is James Bond an alcoholic? I'm going to say less. I think. Well done, Phil. You are correct. He drinks only six units of alcohol in Diamonds Are Forever, although it is spread across several glasses of uh, of different beverages: sherry, Mouton Rothschild, vodka martini, and whiskey. So quite a few, but uh, overall, just a glass of each. So uh, over to Adam. You have license to kill. Is it uh, more 
Higher or less? Lower? He only has six units in Diamonds Are Forever. Oh, he's got to have more than that. He's at a wedding, for God's sake, in a licensed kill, so I'm going to go higher. I'm surprised it's only six Diamonds Are Forever. He is in Vegas. Well, you'll be surprised even more because you are incorrect. It's actually lower. He only has four units of alcohol in Licence to Kill, two glasses of champagne and a glass of his vodka martini. So, uh, Phil, you're still one nil up. So, Phil, back to you. You have Goldfinger. Is it higher or lower? We've got four units from Licence to Kill. I mean, I'm trying to work out how alcoholic that mint julep is that he has at uh, Goldfinger's ranch. I'm going to say higher. It is indeed higher. Well, then, Phil, it's 12 units in Goldfinger. Of course, the mint julep, two glasses of red wine, three glasses of brandy. Uh, so, what, well, Phil, you are 2 nil up. So, to uh, get back in the game, Adam, you've got die another day, higher or lower than 12 units. Ooh, 12 years. I can't really remember many dining scenes, though, in Diamonds After. I mean, there's sort of ice palace-ness going on. There's a little bit of Cuba, but I, I kind of remember more of a cigar in Cuba. He does a lot more smoking, so I'm probably going to say lower than Goldfinger. Well done, you are correct. It's just 5.5 units, the mojito and some champagne and, and some whiskey. That's uh, only totaling 5.5, so it's 2-1. Uh, so we're over to Phil you, for the win, Phil. We've only got three films each, and we are over to Skyfall. So what was done of the day was five units, wasn't it? So he's in the casino. I'm going to say lower. Well, you've missed your chance for the win there, Phil. It was actually higher, quite a lot higher. 16 units, champagne, whiskey, martini, a shot of McKellen. So you're quite a lot of McKellen. I said, McKellen. A shot of McKellen? <laughs> yeah, he's in the Bond That's film. That's a different film entirely, I think. <laughs> So it's over to Adam to level things up. You've got You Only Live Twice, higher or lower than 16 units. Well, there's definitely some sake. There's a swig of Siamese vodka. But um, I think at a certain point he stopped drinking. So I'm going to say lower than Skyfall for that. Well done. You've leveled things up to a piece. It's 9.5 units in You Only Live Twice. So we're on to the tie break now. I'll choose a film that we haven't had so far and we'll just go between you and you just have to tell me one of the uh, the beverages that Bond drinks in that film until we can think of no more. So let's have one of my favourite films, not one of uh, everyone else's, but uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, over to Bronholm. So we'll start uh, with Phil. Do you want to give us one of the alcoholic drinks that Bond has in that film? Yeah, so when Bond is in his hotel room, he has I'm definitely the Smirnoff vodka. So he has at least one shot of that. Well done, Phil. Yeah, half a bottle of Smirnoff Red. Well done. So uh, over to Adam. Well, I think at the, the whole Carver Media launch, doesn't Paris order him a vodka martini? So I'll, I'll just go for that martini. She does indeed. Well done. Back to Phil. And I'm already struggling. Does he have a whiskey while he's with the Danish shooter? I don't think that's right, though. No, he doesn't have a whiskey, Phil. So it's back to Adam. There's two remaining. It's very tricky. I, I With that Danish, uh, I wonder if he has champagne with someone at some point in the film. That would sort of make sense. So I'm going to have a punt at champagne. He does indeed. Well done, Adam. You've come back from... Phil really should have won it on that last question, but you've come back. A great victory there. And uh, I think a much better quiz than uh, Phil's car one, to be honest. I'm not sure. You'll be delighted to hear that I'm on the quiz next time, so you can guess what that topic will be. Oh, great. So that brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you very much for joining us this time in the cubby hole. We'll be back next month with our next episode. 
in the meantime, do check us out on social media or send us uh, an email if you've got any questions, comments, or theories of your own that you want to share with us. So uh, thanks a lot for joining. I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil. Hope you enjoyed the show. Good night. Did anyone, has anyone seen Christopher Walken in that BBC show yet? I heard he's been in the sitcom, but didn't he get into loads of trouble because he sprayed over a Banksy or, you know? Yeah, I just found it so odd. You go on iPlayer. Oh, here's the latest BBC series. Oh, my word, Christopher actual Walken's in it. I mean, fair play to him. He sounds like he is a good sport, in fairness. He was also recently playing a terrible Irish accent in a Wild Mountain Time, the infamous Jamie Dornan thinks he's a bee film. Has there ever been a good film involving bees? I can't think of what there was that one. There's obviously Nick Cage's Wicker Man remake. Oh, God, the bees! As The Swarm, Michael Caine's famously terrible film. I was going to say, haven't there been a few sort of horror films about sort of like killer bees where the... Yeah, but none of them any good. As far as I can tell, the finest bee moment in cinema is when they kill Macaulay Culkin in My Girl. I think technically, though, if we're being pedantic, they are hornets. They're not actually bees. Well, you can, if, you, if, if we've got this wrong and they're a different species, you know, let us know. But from, from memory, I think they are hornets. Yeah, I forgot this. These are your villains, aren't they, Phil? You hate bees and wasps and hornets. This is why I can never watch the Disney film Bee Movie, because it's just, you know, it brings back so many terrible memories. That's a shout out to the fans. Has there ever been a good film involving bees? Very good. So we look forward to the next Bond film, which will just be a remake of Goldfinger. But rather than uh, making all the gold radioactive, it'll be some kind of honey-based plot. <laughs>